Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. My name is Dana, and I'd like to welcome back my regular co-host for this series. Mike, how is everything today? Uh, everything is going great, Dana. Thank you. Excellent. Well, this is going to be volume 13. Now, what I wanted to do is I wanted to come up with kind of a, a unique theme for this episode. And I text you and said, hey, I'm going to do director's first feature film or first theatrically released feature film. And I think I challenged you to come up with the same idea. What's interesting, I'm going back through the archives of the 20th Century Movie Club and I'm realizing that, you know, we talked about in the first couple of episodes that we would have something known as our wild card picks in the event that either one of us selected the same movie. Well, 12 episodes in, that hasn't happened yet. But I have a feeling that that could possibly happen with this episode. So I just want to show for the record that I have eight picks standing by just in case. I have uh, I have six. So <laughs> I think we're both we're both uh, stacked and ready to go. And, and honestly, I think there's probably one that you and I both immediately thought of that is probably the most likely one that that will sort of trigger a wild card. I could be wrong, but when I think of sort of directorial debuts, this is kind of one of the first ones that pops into mind. We were just, t again, texting back and forth. And, and like we're not set in stone on their very first film. Like there, We'll give a little leeway if it was a made-for-TV movie that maybe got a theatrical release in Europe, or you know if it had been a really small movie that no one had ever heard of, and then, then they hit it with a kind of a bigger film, you know, we're going to give ourselves a little bit of leeway. Okay, so Mike, I'm going to just, we'll go ahead and get started and I'm going to turn it over to you. And I will say that if, you know, we come up with this wild card thing, we're going to admit it. So, so what's the first pick for you for volume 13 of the 20th Century Movie Club? So the first one is one of the ones that immediately popped into my head. Um, you know, I've, I've made no, uh, I've made it no secret that John Woo is my favorite director of all time, but unfortunately, John Woo's first movie is a thoroughly unremarkable mid-70s uh, kung fu movie that, that just you wouldn't even know he directed it if you watched it. So I moved to my second favorite director of all time, and he has one of, I think, the most, uh, certainly of the last 40 years, one of the most uh, explosive debuts, and that is Sam Raimi. Uh, so my first recommendation is going to be 1981's The Evil Dead. For those who don't know, this is the movie that put Sam Raimi on the map, created the Evil Dead series, gave us Ash Williams, one of the great horror heroes of all time and ultimately paved the way for Raimi to, you know, 20 years later, take over or take on Spider-Man. The thing about Evil Dead that makes it so fun is this is a truly indie guerrilla filmmaking type of movie. It has a very, very standard plot. Five friends go to a cabin in the woods uh, wherein they run afoul of uh, demons by inadvertently reading from a, uh, a Sumerian book of the dead that resurrects it opens essentially the doors to hell and allows demons to come back into the world the demons slowly possess the friends uh, and our sort of hero in this case is Bruce Campbell's Ash, who has to kind of try and fight off these demons. Those who know the Evil Dead movies know how sort of crazy and wacky uh, the series gets. Evil Dead 2 is very much a mixture of comedy and horror. Army of Darkness is basically full-blown comedy. Ash versus Evil Dead is also really more in that Army of Darkness vein. But the thing that a lot of people don't really necessarily remember is Evil Dead itself is a balls-to-the-wall pure horror movie. This thing hits the ground running. It's 85 minutes. There's no nonsense, and it just goes. And the thing that Raimi developed filming this movie are some of his signature techniques that have now become uh, common cinema and have been ripped off thousands of times. You know, one of the most famous ones, if you've seen the movie, if you haven't, this isn't a spoiler. Uh, the way Raimi sort of represents the demons traveling is they he shoots a low angle shot very quickly along the ground almost as though it's a sort of fast moving mist or wind. And the way he did that was they basically bolted a camera to a couple of two by fours and Raimi and another person stood on each end of the two by fours and ran as fast as they could jumping over logs and stuff like that to try and get this shot 
and it's smooth and it looks amazing. So the the DIY aesthetic of this movie, I think, really is impressive. And again, the the impact it had culturally uh, and the careers that it created, and the 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 impact beyond even just the movie. I mean, a lot of people may not know this. Uh, Evil Dead fans do that. One of the editors on this movie is Joel Cohen, and that's where Raimi met Joel and Ethan Cohen, and they sort of forged a very very long uh, relationship and friendship that ended up with Raimi co-writing Hudsucker Proxy and he's done work on a bunch of their other movies. So really this is just an amazing classic of the horror genre. It's one of my favorite movies of all time by one of my favorite directors. Have you actually, have you seen Evil Dead, Dana? I haven't. I know. It's just it's one of those ones where, you know, I don't, I think we've discussed this before. I don't do well with certain types of horror movies. And give it the, maybe the low budget aesthetic look that the film has, or just some of the iconic scenes that I've, you know, I've seen in memes or I've seen in trailers. It just looks like a movie that I would have a very hard time getting through. And I, that's not a knock on the movie itself. That's probably a compliment to how probably terrifying I think the movie was going to, would, would be. So, so I've never seen it, but I'm very familiar with the whole genre or the whole uh, the whole franchise. I've actually never seen any of them. I'm very familiar with them. I haven't seen the remake. I haven't seen Ash versus Evil Dead. I completely get that you know Bruce Campbell is this iconic horror legend, and it's one that I guess when we get to episode twenty. This is going to be the first one I'm going to have to watch. Well, and one thing that I would recommend, I mean, this is one you should watch. I can kind of give you a little asterisk if, you, if you're if you a little worried about this one. I normally recommend that people start with Evil Dead 2. One of the, the interesting sort of background things on Evil Dead 2 is there were some licensing issues to use footage from Evil Dead 1. So they actually went back and sort of reshot a different version of the first Evil Dead. So the first half of Evil Dead 2 is almost like a weird remake of Evil Dead 1. So you actually don't need to see Evil Dead 1 to watch Evil Dead 2. And I think for most people, I recommend that's where you start because it starts off very scary and then it becomes... You know, Sam Raimi's been very upfront. He's a big fan of the Three Stooges, Looney Tunes, cartoons, uh, things like that. And so by the end of the movie, it's a full-blown, almost slapstick comedy uh, in a horror vein. I mean, it's one of the movies that kind of, I don't want to say it invented it because, you know, the Abbott and Costello movies, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, got there first. But I consider Evil Dead 2 one of the foundational horror comedies of all time. It really created an aesthetic that we've seen in a lot of later horror comedies from from good ones like Tucker and Dale versus Evil to, you know, ones that came out in the 90s that aren't necessarily as great like Idle Hands. So if you want to start, that might be a better place to start, but that doesn't fit with our directorial debuts. So I am recommending the first Evil Dead. The one other thing I would just recommend everybody, so people may not know this, but a small theater in Toronto about 10, 15 years ago created an Evil Dead the Musical that has been on tour throughout the United States and Canada. It's currently, it's got a, an installation in Vegas opening in October. If you have a chance to see Evil Dead the musical, you need to. It is great. You absolutely have to see it. You have to sit in the splatter zone so you get covered in blood. That makes it totally worth it. So if you have a chance, please, please, please go see that as well. That's awesome. Now, uh, this wouldn't be the 20th Century Movie Club without me asking you about the remake that came out a few years ago. Thoughts on it? I actually really, really like the remake. Uh, so the remake is definitely a remake of Evil Dead 1. It is balls out horror. There is not an ounce of humor in it. It's nasty. It's uh, mean, but it's well done. And uh, I actually think it it stands solidly as as a remake you know i know you and i aren't always big fans of remakes i kind of think evil dead is the way to do a remake uh they change i don't want to get into spoilers but they change the characters so it's not a straight remake and and actually what's kind of interesting is it's not even you get to the end of the movie and it's not even really a remake at all it's more like a side story that takes place in the same universe uh, i know the plans have kind of fallen through but the idea was at one point that the 
main character of the remake played by Jane Levy, and she's phenomenal in it, and Bruce Campbell were actually going to meet up in a movie at some point. And that, that never came together. But I think that gives a good idea of why I think the remake works. They're not just remaking Evil Dead. They're making an Evil Dead movie. And it's good. It's intense. It is It is a lot of fun. I may watch that one tonight. We'll see. We'll see. You're talking about the, uh, the original, not the remake, of course. Right. All right. So for my first pick, and you know, this was challenging because there was a couple, I, I just want to give, give an honorable mention to Andrew Davis because I was doing research on Andrew Davis who directed Under Siege and The Fugitive. And it, it, it appeared to me that I was going to do Code of Silence, but it after doing a little more research, I realized that he did have a theatrically released film prior to that, even though upon my initial research, it didn't appear that way. So honorable mention for Code of Silence. I just want to put that out there. I watched that yesterday with the imp- under the impression that this was his first theatrical release film. However, it wasn't. But I have to ask, Mike, Code of Silence? Yes? No? Yeah, it's it's good. It's one of my, it's one of the only, uh, so I grew up liking Chuck Norris. As I got older, I realized that he's a sentient block of wood and his movies <laughs> became much less interesting to me. But um, I think Code of Silence, maybe more than any of his other movies, is the one that actually stands tall as a good movie. And Davis was actually able to, I don't know if he was able to bring more out of Norris or he was just smart enough to know how to point him and direct him and use him at what he does best. Uh, but Code of Silence is a, a, a very, very solid 80s cop movie. It's not actually what you think of when you think of a Chuck Norris movie. It's almost more, and it's been a while since I've seen it, but it almost feels more like it should be starring like Gene Hackman or Roy Scheider or somebody like that. Like it, it has a very 70s kind of feel to it with an 80s sheen. Um, and, you know, it's Andrew Davis. The guy was great. You know, we could probably spend a few more minutes talking about it. But what I appreciated about that film, again, watching it through the eyes of thinking this was his first theatrical release film, is that he was very loyal to a lot of the character actors that he would use in subsequent films, be it The Fugitive or Under Siege or, or any other films. I recognize so many of these characters, and I just thought it was I th- th- that was a great movie. So, but for my first pick here, I guess we're going a little bit uh, on the horror movie side of things right now, because I wanted to go with what I thought was a very good directorial debut for a man who made a couple good movies subsequently afterwards, but to me, he'll always be known for this film, and that is Chuck Russell. And the movie I'm talking about is not 1987's A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. Now, for those who haven't seen it, I don't know how to to talk about the plot without getting into spoilers. It picks up a few years after the events of the first film. It has to do with the last remaining Elm Street children. I I mean, I really don't want to get into the plot of Nightmare on Elm Street, especially people who haven't seen it. But here's what you need to know. This is arguably the best sequel in the franchise, and some people will even say that it may be the best movie in the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. It does everything right. It's terrifying. It has a, just a little bit of that wisecracking humor that Freddy Krueger will become famous for in subsequent movies, but I think it has the best characters, the best character arcs, I think some of the best special effects, and I think it's a truly terrifying film. I think my favorite of the Elm Street sequels by far. Mike, what do you think of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3? Oh, I I fucking love it. Um, it is by far and away my favorite Nightmare uh, movie. You know, you mentioned some people consider it the best of the sequels. Some people consider it the best of the series. I think I still think the first one's probably the best one just because the first one manages to really drill down into the horror of that situation. You know, the idea that we're supposed to be able to go to bed. We watch scary movies and when we go to sleep, that's when we're supposed to be safe and we wake up the next day and it's all in the past. And first one really drills into that. Well, what do you do if sleep itself is no longer safe? That being said... I have seen the third one probably three or four times as many times as I've seen the first one. Chuck Russell just brings such an energy and a sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, panache to that movie and really does create uh, uh, a fun 
sort of closer. Uh, you know, it's a direct sequel to the first one, and I'm trying to avoid talking about it too much. But for those who've seen, haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street 2, it's kind of an outlier. It's it's a good movie. I like it a lot, but it's a bit of a weird one. Three is a direct sequel to one. And it's very clear that three was designed to sort of be the blowout action-y horror. It's Aliens to Nightmare's Alien is the best way I can sort of describe it. And and I love it for that. It's so much fun. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that it has by far and away the best theme song ever in a horror movie in Dawkins' Dream Warriors, which is a song that I still listen to on a regular basis because that song kicks all sorts of ass. I love this recommendation, Dana. I'm so happy you made it. I want to talk just a little bit about the just going to mention three or four films that Chuck Russell did post Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, because it would be very easy for us to pick huge directors that everyone knows. And like, of course, you know, their first movie was fantastic. But I think one could make the argument that that this being his directorial debut, this may have been his best film that he made. So I'm just going to throw a few names at you here, a few titles, and just give me your thoughts. So we're looking at 88 The Blob, 94 The Mask with Jim Carrey, 96 Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then 2002's The Scorpion King. What do you think of those films? So The Blob is great. The Blob is arguably, the, I think, the best horror remake of all time. I think it, it surpasses the Steve McQueen original in every way shape or form uh the blob is fantastic i haven't seen the mask in a very very long time but i remember thinking it was a very good use of jim carrey because you know he had done the mask just after ace ventura if i'm not mistaken i think they both came out the same year and ace ventura it's jim carrey dialed to a thousand and the mask it really was kind of interesting because russell managed to pull out some real depth uh, from his performance in that movie. You know, if you go back and rewatch The Mask, it's actually not surprising that he turned into the Jim Carrey that we got in The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and, and a lot of the other great performances he's turned in. So I remember it being good. I would imagine that the CGI is probably a little dated. And, you know, uh, Chuck Russell knew he had a star in the making with Cameron Diaz. He certainly knew uh, not only is she incredibly attractive in that movie, but she's very good. She's very funny. He knew he had a talent with her and he knew how to use her well. I'm not a huge fan of Eraser. I think that was a bit of a misfire. Um, I feel like that was Arnie attempting to kind of go back to, you know, some of his older movies. And I just feel like it didn't work that well. Uh, Scorpion King, I thought, was a real misfire. I I saw that movie opening night. I was very excited to see it because I thought I actually loved The Mummy Returns, but I thought The Rock was seriously misused in that movie. They didn't I don't even know why he was why they cast The Rock. I was really excited for The Scorpion King. And I just thought, again, you know, for Russell, knowing the talent that he had in Cameron Diaz and Jim Carrey, I thought he really misjudged what he had in The Rock. The Rock is kind of stoic in that movie. And he's not the charming rock that we've, you know, that has become basically the biggest actor in the world now. Uh, so I thought that one was a real misfire. What? What do you think on on those movies? Dan? Well, I've, I've I've only seen The Blob one time. And that was twenty something years ago, and I I don't have any negative thoughts about the film. I think I need to rewatch that again. I've never seen The Mask. I did not get on the Jim Carrey train. Interestingly enough, I did not get on the Jim Carrey train until The Cable Guy, which I absolutely love. And I I know I might be in the minority by saying that, but it's one of my favorite Jim Carrey films. So I actually have never seen The Mask. Eraser. That was part of, I, I always call 1996 at the movies, it was the, it was the summer of Dana because that was the year that I moved out on my own and went to every movie came that came out every week. And Eraser was one of them. And that was one I was pretty amped up for. I think True Lies was the last great Arnold Schwarzenegger film. And I think with Eraser, he was trying to capture some of that magic. Didn't work for me. And I've never seen The Scorpion King. I just, for whatever reason... So I'll go I'll go back to the original question for you, though, is do you think Elm Street 3 is his best work? I think it's a real close tie between or not tie, but I think that and the blob are very close. And then you have sort of descending rapidly down. But I think Elm Street is probably overall his tightest movie. It's certainly the the movie of his that I have revisited the most. It's the one that stayed with me the most. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it's his best work. What's interesting about it is if you look at, you know, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't know what the, the budget was for The Blob, 
But I'm sure The Mask and Eraser and Scorpion King, those were big budget films. But he had nothing to work with on Elm Street 3. I mean, they would hire first-time directors and give them nothing in way of a budget to work with. So what he was able to accomplish just on a visual effects level is really astounding. Well, and he was smart enough to know that his best visual effect was Robert England. Yeah. And he 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 used him to the fullest. I think three because one Freddy is so much in the shadows. He's he's this menacing lurking thing. And by the time we get to four, five, and six, you know, he's the Bugs Bunny wacky villain. Three, I think, is almost sort of the platonic ideal where he has some of those Freddy one-liners, but he's still menacing. And and Russell knew exactly how to use Robert England and use Freddy in that movie. I, I think three is I think that's peak Freddy. I think that's the best Freddy performance that England gave. All right. So what is your second pick? So uh, my second pick is a, a, a surprisingly, we do not have this director, I don't believe, on our list already. And so it seemed like a good opportunity to pick him. Uh, I'm going to go with a movie. And it's a movie that has a lot of ties to to my my beloved home state of Utah in that this is the movie that actually ended up putting the Sundance Film Festival on the map. Um, And so I'm going to recommend 1989's Sex, Lies, and Videotape from Steven Soderbergh. So this is a directorial debut to blow all directorial debuts away. For those who don't know, I am a massive, massive Soderbergh mark. Uh, I love all of his movies, even when they don't work. I love that he tries them. I, I don't know that there is a more creative director working today that, that is just willing to just follow his whims wherever they may take him. You know, going from somebody who made something like Sex, Lies, and Videotape to Oscar Beatty movies like Traffic to just knock down, drag out martial arts movies like Haywire. Like, the, if you look at Soderbergh's filmography, it is bananas the movies that he has made. And this is the one that really created his career. Obviously, it is. It's his directorial debut. But for those who haven't seen it, it is a very, very low-key indie drama about uh, a group of four people who are sort of entwined. We've got James Spader playing a uh, a man who comes back to uh, his hometown of, of Baton Rouge with a video camera and an interesting story. His college best friend is played by Peter Gallagher, who's married to Andy McDowell. They have a very troubled marriage. Andy McDowell's sister is played by Laura San Giacomo, and this is not a spoiler because they reveal it very quickly. Peter Gallagher and Laura San Giacomo are having an affair, and it's all sort of about how James Spader coming back and his particularly quirky behaviors sort of reveal all these secrets that everybody's hiding and but also allow everybody to move forward and be who they're supposed to be for a movie that was sort of when you if you saw the trailers and remember when it came out it was kind of positioned as a very sort of intense drama and I don't think it really is. I actually think it's kind of a, a hopeful and and optimistic movie uh, once you get to the end of it, which is something that I actually love about Soderbergh, period. The guy is an optimist at his core. His movies always have a thread of hope and of upbeat uh, sort of nature to them. You know, I, I, I always remember traffic and how bleak most of that movie is and i won't spoil it but the ending the last scene involving benicio del toro is i i feel like just such an optimistic way to end that movie and that's what soderbergh does and and you can really see if you watch this one he is steven soderbergh you know you talked about how you thinking that code of silence was andrew davis's first movie and how very much he was just andrew davis this is the same way soderbergh is soderbergh at the start of this movie when he creates this movie and and everything he's done since you can still trace back to this movie it's a it's an indie movie don't go in expecting a lot of fireworks and stuff like that i mean it is the the walking, talking definition of a Sundance movie. Uh, but without this movie, 
the frankly Sundance isn't uh, the movie that or the film festival that we know it to be now. This is really the movie that started that festival, even though it had existed before that. And it also is the movie that started the 90s indie boom. This is this and one other movie that I'm betting will come up on this podcast are really the two movies that are credited with starting the 90s indie boom. Have you seen Sex, Lies and Videotape, Dana? This is one of those situations where I'm like, oh, gosh, I've seen every Soderbergh film except for one. And in this case, it's the one you're talking about. I'm very familiar with this movie. I was just old enough to realize that this was a, a very, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a very controversial film. Even the title in 1989 was extremely controversial. I echo everything you said about Soderbergh films from, I mean, Traffic is an epic the Oceans movies, well, one and three, I just, I think are just some of the most rewatchable movies ever made. I love Haywire. And what was the one that he did last year, the year before about robbing the bank, uh, robbing the, uh, the, the uh, NASCAR track? I can only think of it as Oceans 7-Eleven because uh, Logan Lucky. <laughs> Logan, Logan Lucky, Lucky, yeah. And then, yeah. and then Logan Lucky, which I thought was just a delight. So, I mean... I haven't seen it. I'm so familiar with it. And it's, I don't want to say it's one of those ones that fell through the cracks. I don't know if it necessarily grabbed my attention to the point where I wanted to see it at 11 years old. That's how old I was when the movie came out. But I do remember it being really controversial. Can you second that? Yeah, it, it absolutely was. And what's so funny is it's, I mean, I, I think it was even kind of tame at the time. I think it was like a lot of controversies. It's a controversy drummed up. And this isn't really a spoiler uh, because it's kind of the overarching plot of the movie and you can just get it by reading the back of the box art. James Spader, what he does is he records women. Uh, he videotapes women talking about their histories, their sexual experiences, their likes, their dislikes, their mostly all like fully clothed. There's very little actual sex in the movie. It's really more about the lies in the videotape. Uh, but essentially he's doing uh, sort of a precursor to kind of uh, what would end up becoming I feel even terrible saying this, but like what would end up becoming sort of the gonzo porn genre, right? Where you interview the girl and then you go into the porn. He's doing the interview parts and that's what it's all about. But the thing is, is it's there's a lot of language, but there's not it, it's so tame by today's standards. I honestly think you could find everything that happens in this movie on major network television now. But when it came out in 89, people saw the title Sex, Lies and Videotape and they just you know, didn't bother to watch the movie. They just got freaked out. It was super controversial. I, I just want to clarify that if anybody's going into this thinking it's going to be some, you know, hot and bothered 90s erotic thriller. It's not. It's a talky indie drama. But what they're saying and the performances that they give. I mean, I am not a big Andy McDowell fan. I'll be honest with you. I think she has been uh, mediocre to bad in a lot of her movies. Soderbergh is able to just bring out such an amazing performance, uh, a a wounded, painful, uh, heartbreaking performance from her in this movie. And, and she's never better in her career than she is in this movie. Um, and Spader is clearly uh, test driving the what would become the 90s, 2000s James Spader uh, role. And Peter Gallagher's never not great. You know, this is just a, but it was very controversial. It was uh, upsetting to a lot of people when it came out. So for my second pick, I'm going to go with a very well-known and very established director that I would say everybody has seen at least, safe to say, five of his movies. Best way for me to describe his work is very eclectic. Almost no two movies are the same. Yet when you're watching one of his films, it, there's no mistake about who is the director. And I'm talking about Tim Burton, who I have, just, you know, he's for some people, Tim Burton is the end all be all. For me, he is just a, another director who, when his movies come out, I'm on the fence of whether or not I want to go see them. 89's Batman was a movie that I couldn't wait to see. I haven't seen a Tim Burton film theatrically released in several years. That being said, his theatrical debut, which came out in 1985, 
if I was to do a top 20 list of my top 20 favorite films, I, I, it'd be, I'd be hard-pressed not to put this one on here. And it couldn't be more opposite from your last recommendation. And that is Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which stars Paul Rubens. Now, it's very difficult for me to try to explain the plot of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but I'll be as basic as I can. Paul Rubens plays Pee-wee Herman, who is... I don't even know how the best way to describe him, and we'll get into that. The basic plot of the film is that he, there's nothing on this earth he loves more than his bike. And at the beginning of the movie, his bike is stolen, and he goes on a, I mean, a wacky cross-country adventure to find his bike. And I'm not going to say anything more than that, except to say that this movie really is unlike anything else you'll ever see, period. And it is probably one of my favorite comedies of all time. And it's based off of Paul Rubens was a member of the Groundlings, which is this revolutionary improv group in California. And he actually created this as a stage play. It was called the Pee Wee Herman Show. And it debuted in 1980. And one of his top collaborators was the late Phil Hartman. And Phil Hartman and Rubens, they wrote the script together. And it's just like, I'm just going to start laughing if I try to recall any of my favorite parts of the movie. So I'll just turn it over to you, Mike. Your thoughts on Pee-wee's Big Adventure. This almost never happens. I've never seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, I, this is uh, this is one that's going to have to go on the list when we do volume 20, and it will be at the top of the list. I've never actually seen it. It's one of the few Tim Burton movies that I haven't seen. And I don't know. It, it's just it's one of those that it kind of came at a point where... So being an only child, I watched almost every movie growing up with my parents. It's why I was able to watch. I think they felt comfortable with me watching so many horror movies and R-rated action movies and stuff is because they were watching them with me. And this was one that they just never had any interest in seeing. And so I never really got around to watching it. Um, I, I remember watching Pee-wee's Playhouse, but I never actually saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And it's one that's always been on the list that I need to get around to watching. I have a very complicated relationship with Tim Burton. You know, you mentioned, Dana, that you haven't seen a Tim Burton movie theatrically in a long time. I I feel like Tim Burton's one of those directors that I keep watching his movies hoping that I'll finally love one, and I never really do. And I think that's also part of the reason that I was that I never really got around to watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure is just because I don't love Tim Burton movies. He's got a couple that I like, you know, one that is a stay tuned for I'm assuming one of us will recommend at some point is Ed Wood. I think Ed Wood's absolutely brilliant. It's phenomenal. Uh, I think it's the best movie he made. But then there's others like I don't love Batman 89 and I won't get into it and don't at me about it. I but I love Batman Returns. So I just am all over the map when it comes to Tim Burton. But I will We'll definitely put this one on the list and and make sure to watch it because it is one of those gaps in my my film history that I think I need to fill. Now, this is a couple things I want to say. And since you haven't seen it, I'm going to keep this, I mean, 100 percent spoiler free. You see shades of the director that Tim Burton would become. But this movie is really the peewee story this is really paul rubens and phil hartman and the movie is really i mentioned it's sort of a road trip it's the classic road trip while he's trying to find his bike it's almost a series of little vignettes with different characters every situation that peewee finds himself in is always with a very interesting character that you want to spend more time with and then he sort of moves on to the, to the next part of his adventure and it's a movie that is very clearly, it's safe for kids to watch. I think it's rated PG, but the true humor is one that adults are going to get. And it's got a fantastic score. Danny Elfman, you know, longtime collaborator with Tim Burton, does just this iconic score, which you'll never be able to get out of your head once you hear it. I am so excited to hear your thoughts on this film when you watch it. I, there's nothing more I can say, but we'll when we get to episode 20, I'm sure we'll spend at least 20 minutes talking about it because, and, and let's, let me just follow up by saying that they made a sequel called Big Top Pee Wee. They made the TV show, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse, and they made another one, Pee Wee's, uh, I can't remember what the, the last one was called. It was another one that came out on Netflix a few years ago, Pee Wee's Big Holiday. None of those ones that I just mentioned, I think capture the magic and the humor of this original movie. So I'll be very excited to hear your thoughts. I'm looking forward to watching it. Excellent. All right. Perfect. All right. So what is your third pick for this one? And by the way, listeners, we haven't hit that wild card yet. And I really thought we would have by now. We haven't, but we might on this one because I've been kind of holding off on recommending this one to see if you were going to, but it's my last pick. And uh, I think I need to, I think I need to take it. This director's not on our list yet. 
This director is one of the most important directors of the last 30 years in American cinema. And I mentioned it briefly, uh, vaguely, when I was talking about Sex, Lies, and Videotape. This is the other movie that I think kind of started the 90s indie boom and put Sundance on the map. So my third recommendation is 1992's Reservoir Dogs, directed by Quentin Tarantino. You want to talk about a directorial debut that is a goddamn bomb dropped into film history and Hollywood and to a certain extent even society as we know it, then you need to talk about Reservoir Dogs. For those who haven't seen it, it is Tarantino's first film. It's a very, very streamlined, basic story of a heist gone wrong. And I don't want to tell you anything more other than a group of relative strangers are brought together. It's a very classic setup. Lots of 50s film noirs uh, kind of have this setup. A group of relative strangers are brought together to uh, commit a heist and the heist goes wrong. And it's about the fallout after the heist goes wrong. It all takes place. It's not quite real time, but it's pretty close to real time. Uh, at least the bulk of the movie seems to take place in more or less real time. And it has a phenomenal cast with Harvey Keitel, uh, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi giving one of my favorite Steve Buscemi performances. The late Chris Penn. Uh, I know a couple episodes ago, Jay, Jay Skipworth mentioned him in Footloose. Uh, he's in this as well. May he, may he rest in peace. Uh, uh, this thing, when it premiered at Sundance, just blew the doors off that festival. It then kind of became, you know, a sort of a cult hit because it took a little bit for distribution, but it opened the door for him to make, for Tarantino to make Pulp Fiction, and, you know, to use a cliche, the rest is history. But if you've seen Tarantino's later movies, that while they're all great and I love them, they have a tendency to be a little bloated, for lack of a better term. Uh, I think the one criticism I have of Tarantino is he has a tendency to sometimes embrace his worst, his worst care, you know, sort of excesses. I think if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, go back and watch it because you will be astounded at how tight and how well put together this movie is. It gets in, it gets out, it gets its job done, and it gets its job done better than damn near anybody had ever done it before. I remember seeing this in in 1992-1993 uh, whenever I didn't get to see it at Sundance but I did see it when it first hit theaters and I was just absolutely blown away by this thing um, I'm absolutely positive you've seen Reservoir Dogs Dana uh, yes uh, numerous numerous times and this was one of those movies that I remember the buzz I remember the buzz when this came out this is the movie that introduced me to what Sundance Film Festival was even though I had heard of Sex Lies and Videotapes I didn't uh, associate the I didn't put together you know the festival and, and, and whatnot this one is the one that sort of introduced me to it this was one that I I mean I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater but I did rent it when it became available on home video and it was unlike anything I had ever seen before. Sort of his, the the way Tarantino, you know, he's something he does quite a bit now, but the way he was sort of do, did the, the non-linear storytelling, even though, you know, you mentioned that it's all happening in real time and, and the events after the heist are happening real time, but he splices that with sort of character introductions and we get to learn a little bit more about each character through these flashback scenes and just the way that that was put together. By the time the movie gets to the climactic ending, you are so fully invested, like them or not, you are so fully invested in each one of these characters that I think you're you're really rooting for some and you're rooting against some other ones. And the ending is completely batshit. And I'm not saying anything more than that. This is an incredible movie with incredible performances. And it introduced me to Steve Buscemi, introduced me to Harvey Keitel, introduced me to Michael Batson, to Tim Roth. I mean, the list goes on. Chris Penn. It was a changing of the guard for film when this movie came out. So, I, I mean, I'm gushing over the film just like you are. I think it's an amazing pick. What can I say? It's it's a phenomenal film. And I want to point out that it's it's 99 minutes long. So, it, I think, and, and listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the shortest film. I mean, his latest movies, when you look at Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and the new one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that one has been listed at two hours and 45 minutes long. So, you know, you use the term bloated, and that might be the way to best aptly describe that. So, yeah, great pick. Yeah, it, this is still, 
I, I lo- like everybody. I love Tarantino, um, but this is still my favorite Tarantino movie, it, it, and it is because of that that tightness that that just it's it's so efficient. And I am always a fan of movies. I, I'm just in awe of movies that can just be efficient. You know, Evil Dead comes in at 85 minutes. This is 99 minutes. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I think, is 100 minutes. I mean, all three of these movies are just efficient. They get in, they get out, they get their job done. And yet, I can count on one hand the number of movies that made me feel, that hit me in the gut the way Reservoir Dogs did the first time I saw it. You know, if you can do that in 99 minutes, it just shows you don't need three hours. You don't need all this kind of and it's not just Tarantino movies because a lot of his movies he he does justify their length. I think I think Inglorious Bastards justifies the length. I think Django could have been cut. I think Hateful 8 actually justifies the length. But a lot of movies these days are 215, 230, you know, they're they're just and they don't need to be, especially when you see a movie like this that can just get in and get out. One other thing I did want to a side recommendation For those who know Tarantino, we know that he is a product of his influences. He's been uh, accused of ripping off other filmmakers. I like to think he's influenced by them and he pays homage to them because he's always been fairly upfront about who those influences are. One side recommendation for this is a 1987, and you all know how much I love my Hong Kong cinema, a 1987 Hong Kong film uh, from the great Ringo Lam called City on Fire stars Chow Yun-Fat and Danny Lee. Uh, you will see scenes lifted wholesale for Reservoir Dogs from City on Fire. I actually think Reservoir Dogs is a better movie, but City on Fire is also great. I I strongly encourage people to seek it out because it's a staple of sort of 80s Hong Kong cinema and you can very clearly see the influences. Uh, I I don't want to spoil Reservoir Dogs, but the plots are very similar involving certain characters and and how they what their role in the movie is. So I I do recommend seeking out City on Fire as well. Awesome. If you could add that to the when we do our uh, where we can find these films, because that sounds like something I want to watch ASAP. I will do So. so. Uh, I will ask you, I mean, you, you know, are you looking forward to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Is that sort of the film of the year for you? I mean, for me, it's probably, you know, I'm really looking forward to episode nine. But to me, a Tarantino film is really, it's an event. I mean, he only plugs these things out every three or four years. So it's, I can say that looking at the schedule over the next six months, it's my most anticipated film of the year. So I have a very weird thing when it comes to Tarantino movies in that I am never excited <laughs> at them coming out. And then I see them and I'm always like, oh, what what was I like waiting for? Like, why was this a problem for me? But so it's not it's not the, the kind of the top of my list. Uh, the two movies I was most looking for. Well, two of the three movies I was most looking forward to this year have come out, which was Endgame and John Wick 3. And then, like you said, episode nine. But I am certain I will We'll see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the theater. I'm like a lot of people. I have a little bit of concern about the Sharon Tate, Charles Manson aspect of it. But I've gone into Tarantino movies being concerned. And for the most part, I've always found that he takes he does not take the exploitative route. You know, I was really concerned about some of the stuff. uh, That it looked like Hateful Eight was going to involve. And I actually feel like a, a lot of that. You know, he had points. He had things he wanted to say. And so I'm very much hoping that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has the same same sort of concept. I will admit Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio look absolutely fantastic in it. I mean, the trailer is amazing. So I am excited for it. But I always approach Tarantino movies because I'm just waiting for that one that doesn't work. Hmm. You know, the one that just misfires completely. He hasn't had it yet, but uh, I'm always a little hesitant. That's an interesting one. Yeah, you're right, because this is the uh, this will be the ninth film that he's done. Uh, I think some people will say that Death Proof is, you know, the one film that it's the only film that that of the, all of his movies is the only one that to not make money. It's the it's the one that was a financial, I don't use the word bomb, but it was part of the Grindhouse double feature and that didn't do well. And I think Death Proof is a is a really interesting concept for a movie and it's it's one of those ones again 90 minutes gets in gets out and has uh, some pretty intense scenes in it 
Yeah, I love Death Proof. I, I am I am a Death Proof stan. I will go to bat for that movie uh, to anybody that's willing to listen to me. All right. Well, I'm going to round out the episode. And I was 100% sure when you were talking about Sundance this last time that you were going to be going with my recommendation, which is another movie that was discovered at Sundance. And it is a movie by a director that has really gone on to have a mixed bag of a career, especially lately. His movie was... To me, to me, the story behind this movie is almost better than the movie itself. It's so, I think, inspirational when you hear the story about how this gentleman, along with a, you know, a producer friend, and they, they managed to make a movie for $27,000 that was purchased at Sundance and became this absolute cultural phenomenon. At least it was for me, because this was the first movie that really spoke to me about, oh, okay, so I can watch a movie that has no action of any kind, no no explosions, no anything. It just is a pure dialogue film. And I found the movie to be absolutely hilarious. I found it to be charming in parts. And I'm also cognizant of the fact that there is some pretty terrible acting in this movie at the same time. But I like the message. I, I really identified with the main character. And of course, I'm talking about 1994's Kevin Smith's directorial debut, Clerks. Now, if you've never seen Clerks, Clerks tells the story of Dante and Randall. And they are exactly what the title says. They are clerks. One works at a convenience store. The other one works at a video store next door. And it's a day in the life of these two characters who really are kind of, kind of, I guess I would use the term kind of slackers. You know, they're not really aspiring to do much beyond working at the store. And it is, like I said, it's a pure dialogue film. And it has, I think, some of the best quotable lines, which I can't use on this show, uh, even though, you know, we do allow a language on, on this show. I just could, in good conscience, use some of the, the what I think are quotable lines in the movie. This is a movie that propelled Kevin Smith into indie filmmaking. His follow-up film, uh, Mallrats, he, I mean, the first, the, okay, so Clerks was made on a $27,000 uh, 27, budget. On the strength of this, he was given a $6 million budget to make Mallrats. That one kind of failed. And then he went on to make one of my all-time favorite movies, Chasing Amy. I am a big fan of early Kevin Smith. And Mike, I, I we've never discussed his career. We've never discussed his movies. I was almost a little nervous about putting this one on this episode. But I cannot deny the fact that when this movie came out, and when I saw it, I think I saw it for the first time in 1995, it would have been 17 at the time. This movie spoke to me and I got it. And I really was on the Kevin Smith train for a long time after this. So I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on 1994's Clerks? So uh, it's funny. Uh, I was holding off on Reservoir Dogs because when we talked about doing this theme, I thought that was the first movie that popped in my mind. I'm like, Dana's is going to recommend Reservoir Dogs. And if he doesn't recommend Reservoir Dogs, he's going to recommend Clerks. And so Clerks was actually my first, you know, like we talked about, we've got a bunch of wild cards. Clerks was actually my first wild card. So uh, we got both of them. As far as as far as I'm concerned, we we just recommended the Sundance Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the three movies that made Sundance dance what it is, which is Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Reservoir Dogs, and Clerks. You know, you got 89, 92, and 94. And I love Clerks. Uh, so you said it spoke to you. Let me tell you about this movie speaking to somebody. When I saw this, I was working at Blockbuster Video, hating my job, basically being Randall. And so we would play this, you know, we'd close down Blockbuster at midnight or one in the morning, whenever the hell we closed it down because we were basically slave labor. We would put this on while we were cleaning up. And it was just the perfect movie for the perfect time in my life. I, I've still watched it and I still think for the most part it holds up, but there is no better time to see clerks than between the ages of about 16 and 21. And if you see it at that age, that movie will just hit you like no movie ever has. Because while the world has changed, we we all still work menial jobs that we hate at that time in our life. And, and that movie just so speaks to that the the way that you show up to work and you do whatever you can throughout the day to make it suck just a little bit less i love this movie i love this recommendation i was hoping that you were going to recommend it because i we needed to talk about it it also gives me a chance to talk about kevin smith because you're right he is uh had a a interesting career I love Clerks. I love mall rats more than than most people do or should. Uh, again, 
something about life experiences. You know, uh, Mallrats was a, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of my psyche here, but uh, my family was going through a particularly rough time when Mallrats came out. And that was a movie, I ended up seeing that five or six times in theaters because when my parents would just sort of blow up and I would need to get out of the house, I would just go see Mallrats. And it never failed to make me happy and put a smile on my face. So I fully acknowledge the flaws in Mallrats, but I will love that movie until the day I die because it it pulled me out of some very, very rough places. Chasing Amy's great, although I will admit, I think actually it holds up less well than some of his other movies, but I still think it's very good. Dogma is a f- flawed misfire but still with value and i will always love jay and silent bob strike back i that movie just cracked me up um and then he got a little more scattered and i haven't enjoyed many of his other movies i will say he does a lot of television directing i watch as we all know i'm a big superhero fan i watch a lot of the cw superhero shows and he directs a bunch of those and he's good tv's actually been very good for him he's uh learned some skills directing tv that he didn't necessarily have so he's still out there he's still doing stuff you know he still does his i guess you could call it stand up but it's more like spoken word and those are always entertaining so yeah god love kevin Smith, glad he's still around. I have to ask, and this this movie doesn't fall under the 20th Century Movie Club moniker, but I have to ask because it's a film that he did. It's a a very serious movie that he did that I have found. I've watched three times now, and I it's hard to say that I enjoy the film, but I find it a very interesting film to watch under the guise of a Kevin Smith-directed film, and that's Red State. And I'm always curious what people's thoughts are on Red State. I actually think Red State was good. I I think... I wish it's tough. It's tough because it's a Kevin Smith movie, but I wish somebody other than Kevin Smith had directed it. But I think Red State is uh, a lot more solid than people give it credit for. I was actually kind of excited to see where he was going to go with horror movies after Red State. I have to admit, I hated Tusk. Um, That was a, a very tough watch for me because I just thought it was... It didn't build on the things that I thought he did in Red State. I almost sort of feel like he took the wrong lessons from Red State. But I like Red State. I think Red State was him trying to branch out and do something interesting. And uh, it didn't entirely work. Uh, Like you said, it's hard to say that you like the movie, but I think it's interesting. And I'm always in favor of directors trying to do interesting things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think at some point, you know, we should really talk about just uh, Kevin Smith retrospective just going across. It's just something I've never done on this show in five and a half years. And it's surprising because, you know, he's a guy, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, where I jumped at any opportunity. Like I saw Dogma in the theater. I saw Jane Silent Bob strike back in the theater twice because I was just at that age where that movie was just absolutely hilarious. I I still like Dogma. Um, I, I'll admit that it's very flawed, like you said, but I think a lot of the characters in it are great. I can't watch Jane Silent Bob Strike Back anymore. I've tried, Michael, I have tried, and I can't do it. And I'm, I'm, it's one of those ones where I want to just sit in the corner and be like, I can't believe I loved this movie when I was, you know, in my early 20s. Like, it doesn't work for me anymore. Be- oh, yeah. I, I know I'm the weird one on Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> like, I, but for whatever reason, I haven't lost. You know, I kind of feel that way. Not to that extent, but I kind of feel that way about Chasing Amy. Um, you know, not to get all sort of social justice warrior-y, but, you know, given what we know about gender roles and, and LGBT relationships and stuff now, a lot of Chasing Amy just really falls flat for me now. But for whatever reason, I still love Jay and Silent Bob. But I know I'm the weird one on that. But, you know, Ben Affleck showing them how to use the Internet just (laughs) still cracks me up to this day. Um, So, yeah, and I would absolutely be down doing a Kevin Smith retrospective because here's the thing with Smith. Every single one of his movies, uh, for the most part, I I think Zack and Miri make a porno. He's kind of coasting on that one. But most of his other movies, they're. They're interesting. He's doing interesting things. There's stuff to talk about. Even the ones that don't work. Like, look, I just said, I hated Tusk. I could talk for two hours about Tusk <laughs> because there's a lot going on in that movie that's worth talking about. So I would totally be down doing Kevin Smith retrospective. What we, we go, we'll just uh, we'll finalize this this Kevin Smith chat 
by I'll ask you about Clerks 2. I liked Clerks 2. Um, I know not everybody loved it. I liked it. I thought it was, um, you know, again, kind of like I, I mentioned that Steven Soderbergh always had an undercurrent of optimism. Kevin Smith always sort of has an undercurrent of, for lack of a better term, sweetness in his movies. And I thought Clerks 2 was really the culmination of that. That's a, for all its gross out humor and and stuff like that. I thought there was a sweetness to it. And again, one of the things that you kind of mentioned seeing clerks when you were 17, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, but not much. And so we grew up with Kevin Smith. And so we grew up with these characters. And so when I saw Clerks 2, where I was in my life was in a place kind of where Dante and Randall were, which was like, we're in a state of arrested development. We need to grow up. We need to move forward. And so the movie really did kind of speak to me um, in a way that maybe, you know, it didn't for other people. But I like and I've rewatched Clerks, too. I for me, it still holds up. And who doesn't love Rosario Dawson? I mean, that if you don't like her in a movie, then there's just something wrong with you because she's always amazing. Yeah. And I um, I remember seeing Clerks, too, in the theater. And I thought that movie had a ton of laugh out loud moments because when you put the characters of Dante and Randall together, I think they just play off each other so well. And I mean, Randall is, to, to use a term you, you coined, you know, he's turned up to a thousand in Clerks 2. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I just thought he was, I just thought they were, I, I, I really enjoyed the movie. You know, the whole ending where, you know, they have the like the little bachelor party thing. That I thought went uh, uh, just a hair over the line for my personal preference. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I could have gone without, you know, he could have even trimmed that scene down just a little bit. I think he did cross the line. Kind of shocked that movie was able to manage an R rating with that scene. But I, I love what you said about, you know, it does have a lot of heart. And, and Rosaria Dawson is fantastic in the movie. She's she's really the heart of that movie. So I think it's yeah, that's a good one. And from what I understand, I've been kind of following the development that, you know, I think he may have already wrapped up principal photography on another Jay and Silent Bob film. Yeah, I think it's a it's a third clerks. Oh, uh, even better. It is a third yeah. clerks. Even better. Yep. Yeah. 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 So we'll probably revisit that when that film comes out. So one other thing, if you have not seen clerks, but you have access to the collector's edition, the 10th anniversary DVD or the Blu-ray, there is a documentary on there called The Snowball Effect that if you are at all interested in behind the scenes documentaries, it is a must watch. It is one of the best behind the scenes documentaries that I think has ever been included on a DVD or a Blu-ray. It's a full feature length and it goes into every aspect of making clerks. So it's 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 a you know and you mentioned you love the story of how this movie was made. If you want to be inspired to go out and make your own movie, watch The Snowball Effect. It's it's a phenomenal documentary. Okay, excellent. I'll definitely check that one out. So, what we like to do at the end of every episode is we want to give you the listeners an opportunity to find the movies that we talked about. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you for your three picks today. Sure. Uh Evil Dead is available for rental or purchase everywhere that you would normally rent or purchase Amazon, Vudu, places like that. It is also streaming on Tubi or Vudu uh, for free, ad-supported. Uh, you get a few ads. I will say I tend to find that Tubi has fewer ad breaks than Vudu does, but both of them are are a good way to watch it if you don't want to pay any money. They don't require any subscription fees. You just sign up for an account and watch them on that. Uh, Reservoir Dogs is uh, currently streaming on Amazon Prime yeah, for free if you have a Prime subscription or Hulu, both in HD. It's also available for rental or purchase everywhere. You mentioned uh, bringing up, uh, talking about City on Fire. If you have a Canopy subscription, and for those who don't know, Canopy is a streaming service that ties into your local university or library. Uh, and it's totally free, and they have a, a bunch of great movies. Uh, if your library supports it, they actually have pretty much the entire Criterion collection on there. But it is streaming on Canopy. That is the only place it's streaming right now. There is also a DVD. Uh, it's an old Sony DVD, but it's anamorphic. It's subtitled uh, that's available on Amazon for 20 bucks new or like four bucks used. And then I kind of went a little out of order. Sex, Lies, and Videotape is basically just available for purchase, but it's available for purchase on all major streaming networks. And it's 
worth the purchase. I know people don't always want to just buy a movie, but it's it's worth the purchase. I'm just going to look up really quick and see if it's available. There is also a Criterion Blu-ray that is probably worth picking up. And it maybe I don't subscribe to it, but it may be on the Criterion channel. So for my picks, um, I, the honorable mention of Code of Silence, I watched it on Tubi uh, just a, yesterday. And uh, Tubi, it's available to stream on Tubi and Vudu ad support. And I'm going to second what you said there. There was not a lot of ads when I watched it on Tubi. Code of Silence is also available to rent and stream across all major platforms. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 is not streaming anywhere, but it is available to rent and purchase across all platforms. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, same situation, not streaming anywhere, available across all, to rent and buy across all major platforms. And Clerks is available to rent and buy on all major platforms, and it is also currently on Hulu. So if you've got a Hulu subscription, I, I, I definitely recommend you check that one out. So, Mike, if people want to follow you on social media? I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and I'm also uh, at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd where you will find, uh, as I mentioned every week, you will find our continually updating list of uh, movies that we've recommended on this show so you can see, go back and see the recommendations we've made. And honestly, we're getting deep enough now that I have to keep referencing it to make sure I don't recommend the same movie again. And so it's, it's very useful. So follow me on that and you can see all of that. We are going to, with this episode, we should be crossing over into the 80s. So we're just a couple episodes out from from triple digits. That's awesome. That is so awesome. It's been such a, it's been so fun doing these, these shows. And, it, and what I love about it is, you know, there's no end in sight with these with this series because there are hundreds, or if not thousands, of movies for us to discuss. Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at the Dana Buckler Show. If you want to email the show with questions or comments, it's uh, the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. And uh, I'd like to put the, a challenge out to the listeners. You know, one of the things that Mike and I, I think really enjoy doing are these themes. And so we'd like for you, the listeners, to, you know, tweet at us or send us an email. Give us a theme. Give us something to work with. Give us challenge us a little bit because, like he said, we're we're almost eighty movies in, and and our no brainer films are really they've been crossed off the list. So we have to have a we have to do a little more digging this time. So I, I strongly invite you to you the listeners to, to 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 challenge us. What do you think of that, Mike? I think that's a great idea. I think we should definitely do this first time directors again. And I think, yeah, please give us suggestions because it's just it's more fun for, you know, Dana and I have both seen thousands and thousands and thousands of movies. And at a certain point, I'm just throwing out names. You know, I could just sit here and pick any random three movies. It's more fun if I have a bit of a challenge or even something that kind of points me in a direction. You know, give us, recommend whatever, film noir movies or, you know, 80s sci-fi, something. Just give us some recommendations because I think it makes it more fun for us and I hope makes it more fun for all of you to listen to. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I want to also point out before we wrap that up that, you know, previous guests that have been on the show, Adam Risky, Jay Skipworth, Dylan Bruff, and Ashley, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have them back on. But uh, one of the things that Mike and I were talking about was every time we had a guest on the show, I wouldn't make picks for the sake of keeping the episode at a respectable length. And so for the next few episodes, it's just going to be Mike and I because I, I, I've got some I still have a list of some movies that I want to talk about. So uh, I am looking forward to having all of those guests I mentioned back on. But we'll do that probably when we get into episodes, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18. So. All right. So, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.